Well, I'm curious, as we get started here today, uh, have you ever been to a parade? How many of you have been to a parade? Most of you, yeah, that's kind of what I figured. How about a victory parade? Have you ever been to a victory parade where the purpose of the parade was to celebrate a victory of some sort? And the reason I ask that is because I don't think I've ever been to a victory parade. Um, I've been to some parades, mostly around holidays or community events or things like that. We used to have a 4th of July parade in the town that I went to, or grew up in, I should say. Um, and then when we lived in Casper, there was a big Christmas parade. And I think the biggest parade I've ever been to was actually here in Sioux Falls when we went to their Christmas parade. That was a pretty big deal. There were a lot of things going on there. And parades are always a celebration, but there's something special about a victory parade. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that, and I, I realized I had half a mind to go to Chicago on November 4th, 2016. We only lived about three and a half hours away. And if I had, I would have been a part of the largest assembling of people on United States soil in the history of our nation. In fact, the five million people that assembled in Chicago on November 4, 2016, represented what most sociologists would say was the seventh largest gathering of people in the history of the world. And I regretted it for weeks and months afterwards. I could have been there. I had a chance. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you might have figured out what I'm talking about. If you're a Cubs fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. November 4th was the victory parade of the Chicago Cubs, and they bust them through the city, and they waved, and they celebrated, and nobody could have expected how many people would come. And people came from hours and hours away. You see, the Chicago Cubs had gone over a year. I'm sorry, over a hundred years. Over a hundred years. Over a year, that wouldn't be that big a deal. No, over a hundred years without winning the World Series. And so the celebration was huge, and the crowds were huge, and the, the excitement was huge. And yet I think, you know, if people will do that over a baseball team, yeah, I know they came back from 3-1 three down, three one down and then they came back in the bottom or top of the 10th inning, and, and, you know, they won it in historic fashion. So I think that all added to it. But I'm thinking if people will do that for a baseball team, what's it going to be like? when that final victory parade takes place in heaven and we get to come in with billions of people throughout time who are there to celebrate the splendor of the King of Kings, to celebrate the final victory over sin and death and to be led in worship by choirs of angels and to be in the presence of the light that casts no shadows and the joy eternal and unspeakable that will be ours forever. Well, our main passage today, Paul is going to leverage the image and the concept of a victory parade to make a really powerful point. So I don't want to waste too much time getting there because I, I learned that we've, we ran out of coffee this morning. And I'm so sorry if you didn't get your coffee. And so I'm going to enlist your neighbors. If you see somebody start to doze off because they didn't get their coffee, just give them one of these. It's okay. It's the old holy elbow. Uh, just keep us awake. We'll, we'll get through this quickly, and we'll get you some more coffee next week. We'll make more. Don't worry about that. Um, but I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, we're going to be focusing on verse 14 and through 16. If you're here in the room, you can pick up one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you and turn to page 1796. If you're joining us online, we'd love for you to open up your Bible, uh, but we'll also have the words on the screen. 
And in this passage, we're going to see Paul start with this idea of a victory parade, but he makes a really powerful point that we're going to consider. Um, It has to do with the difference between obedience and outcomes, and I'll explain that more a little bit later on. But here's Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. That's the victory parade. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life, and who is equal to such a task. And so, as I said, he he leverages the familiar concept of a victory parade, and and his audience would have understood this. If you read the Old Testament, you know that when a king rides out to war, if they're victorious and they come back and the soldiers that survived the battle come back with them, there would be a big parade, and they would usher the king in, and those closest to the king would be his generals and his captains, and then those who had fought with him would be in procession as well, and bringing up the rear would be the slaves and the captives that they had taken and, and brought back. And so there's a familiar concept. Maybe you've heard of the Arc de Triomphe in, in um, Paris. It's a big famous arch. Uh, there's a big arch, the Arch of Titus, that's on the screen behind me that's just outside of Rome. And what's interesting about the Arch of Titus is that Titus was the son of Emperor Vespasian, who was the emperor at the time that the wars were taking place following Jesus' death in, in Jerusalem in A.D. 66 through 70. And it was Titus who finally overthrew Jerusalem and came back victorious and then became the emperor after his father Vespasian. And you can see there's one relief on this ark that actually shows them bringing a menorah back because they would, they would bring back the spoils of war as well. And so all of this um, kind of sets up the idea that Christ has conquered sin and death on our behalf, and He invites us into His triumphal procession. He invites us into the victory parade. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Um, we got a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but it was on purpose um, because we're finishing up our series today. We've been looking for the last five weeks on this idea of trust and obey. And we started with the trust half of that. In the first three weeks, we really focused on trust, on living a life of faith. That's what that word faith means, is to trust in, rely upon, cling to Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And then we talked about how we are invited by God to do that together, that we're not in this alone, that we are better together, and that we can link arms with other believers and trust God together. Then we talked about trusting God's goodness, especially when our sin has separated us from Him, that we can return to Him, that He will welcome us back, that there is grace for our sin, and we can be restored to Him. His desire is that we would be restored to Him. Last week, we kind of turned a corner, and we shifted to the obey half of trust and obey, and we looked at Paul's exhortation at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians to do everything in love. And if you're like me, you said, everything? Like, everything? Surely you mean everything at church. Do everything at church in love. And when you go out and serve in the community, do everything in love then. But do we really have to do everything in love? Like, at home, do we have to do everything in love? And we kind of came to the conclusion, no, we didn't kind of come to the conclusion. We know that Paul actually meant that, that we were to do everything 
in love, that we were to be motivated by love, that we trust, trust that God is good and do what He says to do. That's trust and obey. And we looked at this big idea last week that how we do what we do matters more than what we do. And we had some good conversations this week. People asked about that. They kind of wrestled with that. I, I don't take that as a, as, a, as a negative. I take that as a positive. And people are like, really? Like how we do what we do matters more than what we do? Are you sure? And I, I said, you know, as we talked through that and we looked at what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 13, those first three verses, he says, if I do all these wonderful things, if the, I have the gifts of the Spirit and I'm doing great things, but I don't have love, it's worthless. It's worthless. So it's not that what we do doesn't matter. It's that how we do what we do matters more than what we do. And I added last week, and I'll emphasize again today, why we do what we do matters more than what we do. And and it's not that what we do doesn't matter. It's that our manner, our posture, how we do these things matters a great deal, matters more than what we do. And our motive Matter. So we must be doing what we do in love and motivated by love. And so that sets the stage, brings you up to speed. If you missed a week or you're here for the first time, uh, I got to tell you, one of my favorite things right now in this season is, is seeing people who are coming to church for the first time in months or maybe even a year. I'm seeing people every week that are coming back for the first time. I'm seeing a lot of new folks too. There are people here today that maybe haven't haven't heard any of these messages, or maybe you missed a week, and so you can always catch up on our podcast, on the website, on, uh, on Facebook and YouTube. We have all kinds of ways to stay in touch. And so I want to back up and, and walk through this passage again and make application um, as we seek to really understand what does the Word say, what does that mean for us today, and how does it apply to our lives? So when we look at verse 14 and we see Paul talk about this triumphal procession in Christ, he's talking about a victory parade with our conquering king. That's the image that God is always leading us in the triumphal procession with Christ. And, and, and this is a celebration that we can exist in every single day because every single day we have the opportunity to walk with Christ in his conquest over sin and death. And sometimes we forget how big a deal that is. We forget about the freedom that is ours in Christ over sin and over death. And every day, it says He always leads us. It doesn't say He leads us once, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Do we always follow Him in triumphal procession? Do we, always, do we live every day like it's a victory parade of Jesus Christ in and through our lives? I believe that's available to us. I don't think that's pie in the sky. And I think if we lived and approached each day that way, it would help us a lot in doing everything in love because we would be so motivated and compelled by our gratitude for God for the way that He is leading us in victory through Christ who has conquered sin and death on our behalf. And here's the beautiful part. He invites us into this procession. We don't deserve to be there. We didn't do anything to earn our way in. We surrender to Christ, to His Lordship in our lives. We accept Him as our Lord and Savior, and He welcomes us into His triumphal procession. As I said earlier, you know, it was the generals and the captains and on down to the soldiers that were part of that procession. And yet He welcomes us in and leads us in triumphal procession. All we do is surrender our lives to Him. That's what we do that brings us into the victory 
parade. And through us, we're told in the second half of verse 14, through us, God spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, of the knowledge of Christ. And I love that phrase, and I had to chew on that phrase for a while because to spread means to manifest or to make clear. It's not just, you know, dispersing. It's, it's making it manifest in the world. He's spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And so I want you to think about your favorite scent for a moment. What's your favorite scent? Is it, is it walking into a house where there's a pot of soup on the stove and fresh baked bread in the oven and it just fills the house with that, that scent? Does that, does that elicit emotion in you? Maybe your favorite scent is, is a perfume of someone you love or a cologne of someone that you love and that's your favorite scent and it, it reminds you of them and it elicits fond emotions. Maybe it's a candle. You know, I, I, I've known people who cinnamon candles. It's just their favorite scent. And every time you go into their house, you smell that cinnamon candle. For me, I, I think of a soap. My wife makes handmade soap, and, and my favorite scent of hers is tobacco and amber. I shared that in the first service, and Pastor Keith came down and said, I don't know if I've ever heard of a Wesleyan pastor say that tobacco was their favorite scent. Well, it's not smoking tobacco. It's the smell of tobacco as it dries. Have you ever been in a barn where they had dried tobacco, and it's got that rich, earthy scent, and then you throw amber? I don't even know what amber is. I just know it smells good. It smells really good. It's my favorite scent. But think about your favorite scent because apparently the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ has a fragrance or something akin to a fragrance. And God spreads that through us. And this blows me away because God chooses to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ through us, through you and through me. This is the all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe. He can do anything He wants in any way He wants. And He chooses to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ through us. Because He's a relational God. And He wants to spread the knowledge of Christ through us, through relationships, through you and me. And he continues this thought in verse 15, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. This is where it gets kind of interesting. But don't miss the first part of that where it says that we are to God the aroma of Christ among those that are being saved and those that are perishing. That's the whole world. Like, this is a big deal. We're it. We're plan A. There's no plan B. And, and so he is spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ through us, both to those that are being saved and those that are being perishing. perishing. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I want you to think about this reality that another thing that goes along with these victory parades is that they would burn incense along the way. And so a lot of scholars think that he's pointing to that. You see, the world didn't smell as good 2,000 years ago as it does today. People didn't smell as good 2,000 years ago as they do today. Streets didn't smell as good 2,000 years ago as they do today. And so to have a parade and to have incense, which was expensive, to have that burned along the way and to have this celebration, and it's it's just an assault on your your senses. The smell is good, the the singing, the dancing, the, the sights, the flowers and confetti and all the different things that are all part of this. It's, it's painting a picture. And that's us. Like, we're 
we're, God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him through us. And verse 16 focuses on those two different outcomes, those that are being saved and those that are perishing. To the one, those who are perishing, we are the smell of death. But to those who are being saved, to the other, we are the fragrance of life. And who's equal to such a task? love that question at the end and want to camp out here for a little while. Because to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. Our obedience to Christ, our acceptance of Him as Lord and Savior, leads those who are being saved with the, the fragrance of life. It draws them to Him, just like that favorite scent of yours. It elicits warm emotions. You draw, it draws them to God. And yet... To those who are perishing, that same fragrance is the scent of death. This is a profound mystery to me. Have you ever smelled death? Something ever crawled up under your house and died? It's a horrible smell, isn't it? You can't just, oh, just put it out of your mind. Oh, just don't smell it. You can't not smell it. Like, it it bombards you, that smell of death. And and Paul is making a, a really profound point here. That, that our obedience to Christ, to some, is going to be perceived as the smell of death. And I wish that wasn't the case. I don't like that at all. I can't explain it. It's a profound mystery. Some encounter Christ in us, and it leads them to salvation in life. Others encounter Christ in us, and it's the smell of death. And this is why, when he asks, who is equal to such a task? It's not me. It's probably not you either. In in discerning this, in sorting this out, in understanding and figuring this out, it's Jesus. Only Jesus can, can reconcile that. Only God can reconcile that. And this is why it is so important and it's critical that we understand the difference between obedience and outcomes. God calls us to obedience. And we have to trust the outcomes to Him. Because to some... Our obedience to Christ will lead them to Christ and will bring them to salvation and will be the smell of life, the fragrance of life to them. But to others, that same obedience to Christ will be the smell of death. God calls us to obedience, to do everything in love. And as we do everything in love, some people will take the love and the motive behind it and the way that we did it, and it will drive them away from God because they are perishing. We don't understand this. But we do understand that we must, if we're going to trust God enough to obey Him, we also have to trust Him with the outcomes of our obedience. Because if you decide you're called to a certain outcome, that will be the result of your obedience, and you're just sure of that, you'll likely be miserable if the outcome doesn't match what you were expecting. And if it does, you might be a little prideful that you, you earned it somehow. But if you decide to trust God, to live by faith, to obey His will, you have to also choose to trust Him with the outcomes, to trust Him with the outcomes of that obedience. And I can tell you from personal experience, some of the most miserable times in my life are when I got dead set on a certain outcome and elevated that even over my own obedience. And when the outcome didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to be, I was devastated. I was disillusioned. I thought I had heard it wrong. And I had to have a pastor come to me and say, did you obey what God called you to do? And I said, yes, absolutely. He said, then you have to trust him with the outcome. And this verse 
makes that crystal clear. Some people will take our obedience to Christ and it will lead them to Christ and they will come into the family of God and praise the Lord for that. That's the case, I believe, the majority of the time. And yet there will be people who will be turned off and turned away from God by the same obedience to Him. And I think this has applications. I've seen it in the pastoral ministry, in marriage, in parenting, in evangelistic or missional you know, uh, endeavors, in relationships. I've had people come into my office. They had followed God's word and God's will. They had been obedient as a husband or a wife, desiring a, a wonderful, happy, healthy marriage as an outcome. And yet their spouse had had an affair, had, had turned away, had left them and gone somewhere else. And, and they thought they had failed. And yet if they were obedient and they followed God's will and they did what was right, they didn't fail. And God didn't fail. We have to trust Him with the outcome and realize, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 also, we only see right now in a glass dimly. Someday we'll see and everything will make sense. But right now, we have to trust God with the outcomes, even when the outcomes don't make sense to us. Parenting is another area where I see this, and it breaks my heart as a pastor sometimes. People that were godly parents who, who set a godly example for their children and raised them in a Christian home and taught them the words of life and to watch their children go on a path far from God. It's heartbreaking. And we don't understand why that's the case sometimes when there's obedience that doesn't lead to the outcome we were expecting. Or perhaps evangelism, or perhaps discipleship. You pour into someone. As a pastor, I've done this. I've poured into people. I've been obedient. And they've gone a different path or fallen away. There were people who had worked for companies for years or decades, had been faithful employees, had been dependable, had been honest, had worked hard. And about this time a year ago, they got furloughed and then eventually dismissed. Through no fault of their own, they had been obedient. And if you focus on the obedience and you set that as your goal, to obey Christ and trust Him with the outcome, when that happens, yes, you're disappointed. When things don't turn out the way that you were hoping they would, you're, of course you're disappointed. But you're not devastated. You're not disillusioned because you have done your part. You have obeyed. That's why it's so important for us to understand this and to live this out and to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I'll add another trust at the end. We trust and obey and trust Him with the outcome of our obedience. Because the message of the gospel is trust and obey. It's not believe in yourself and succeed, right? That's what the world seems to say. Believe in yourself. You can do anything you want. And that's well-meaning, and oftentimes that's the case. But, you know, if somebody said... Believe in yourself, Pastor Mark. You can have an MBA career even at your age and your height and your build. No, it doesn't matter how much I want that. It doesn't matter how much I believe in myself. I'm not going to be successful in that regard. So the world says, believe in yourself and succeed because your success equals your value. Your value is based on your ability to succeed. But thank God the kingdom says, your value is determined by Christ's success, that He bridged the gap, that if we are in Christ and we have accepted Him as our Lord and Savior, 
when God looks at me, he doesn't see my laundry list of failures and sins and, and issues. He sees Jesus. Paul talks about this in just a few chapters. It's called the great exchange that Paul takes my righteousness, which was his filthy rags. God takes my, my sin, my shame, my feeble attempts at righteousness. He takes those and he places Christ's righteousness in front. And so when God looks at me, when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see your sins and your failures. He sees Jesus. He sees Christ. And your value, your worth comes from who God says you are, not from your ability to succeed in this world. And to bring this full circle, we don't even deserve to be in the parade, remember? Like, like we just got welcomed in. We didn't fight that battle that Christ won over sin and death, and yet he welcomes us into the triumphal procession to the victory parade. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare to close here, and I, I want to leave you with this thought as we bring this whole series to a close, that if you can trust Jesus with your eternity, and you can trust Jesus with your eternity, you can also trust him with the outcomes of your obedience. You can trust him with the outcomes even when they don't make sense. You can trust him when the outcomes, even when it's not what you prayed for. We can trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, even when we don't understand. And so as we close, the altars are open. Uh, If you'd like to come down and pray at an altar, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, These middle two altars, we take that as an indication you'd really like to pray alone. If you go to the outside two altars, we'll take that as an indication that you would like somebody to come and to put a hand on your shoulder and to pray over you and to intercede for you. You can also go over to this side over here. There's uh, slips of paper and a cross. You can write out a prayer request or a commitment that you're making to the Lord today and roll that up and place it on the cross. Or you can just make an altar where you're seated or where you are at home and ask God through His Spirit to help you make application of this in your own life. Is there an area where, where the outcome didn't match what you were praying for despite your most faithful effort to be obedient. I believe God can speak to you in that. And so however you respond to this, my prayer, as always, is that we respond in faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity, for the invitation that you bring to us to join your triumphal procession in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the awesome responsibility that you give us as co-laborers in Christ to join that procession to to realize that that you are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ through us, through our lives. So what we do matters, Lord. What we do matters. And how we do what we do matters. And why we do what we do matters. Lord, as we seek to trust you and to obey you, May we also remember to trust you with the outcomes, to recognize that sometimes they will not match what we expected, and to continue to trust you and to continue to obey even in the midst of that disappointment. Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.